Hello and welcome to Bridges and Bottlenecks, the podcast series brought to you by Energy Voice Out Loud in partnership with DNV. DNV's UK Energy Transition Outlook predicts that the UK is not on track to achieve net zero. Technology exists that will be the bridge to take us there, but there are still a number of bottlenecks that stand in the way of progress. This series aims to tackle these challenges and highlight the opportunities in the energy transition. In this episode, we'll be looking at hydrogen and carbon capture utilisation and storage, the challenges they face and the opportunities they can bring. I'm Ryan Duff, our Print Features Lead, and joining me in this discussion is DNV's Market Area Manager for Onshore Oil and Gas, James Jenkins, and Tim Junell, Hydrogen Asset Manager at Sterega. How are we doing today, guys? Yeah. Hi, Ryan. Great. Thanks, Ryan. Um, happy New Year and good to be here. Yeah, it's, uh, it is. We're fresh in after the, uh, the Christmas break. We're all... I would like to say, you know, well-rested and ready to tackle the challenges ahead, looking forward to what 2024 brings us. But looking back to the tail end of the year, there were quite a few headlines in the hydrogen space, right, James? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we should say congratulations to Tim and Storega for the Cromarty Hydrogen Project to be offered a contract by the UK government within Harwon. And then also, as well as lead developer uh, on ACORN, they've got the opportunity to define and submit plans for the initial anchor projects. Tim, it must have been a very nice Christmas present for you and Storega. Oh, absolutely. No, many thanks, uh, James. Yeah, no, it's, and it's a culmination of, of several years of, of hard work by uh, the team within Storega and, and, and our partners on, on, on both of those projects. And uh, so yeah, no, certainly a, a very exciting uh, sort of wrap up to uh, to 2023, and, and sets a great platform, not just for Storega but for uh, for hydrogen and and the hydrogen sector for uh, for the UK. An impressive present left under the tree for Storega at the end of the year, but like I said in the intro, we're you know we're here to talk about the challenges and benefits of these these industries that we're touching on in each episode so i guess let's set the scene a little bit guys you know i'll ask i'll come to you both with this but i guess the main question that comes up around hydrogen specifically is why what are the benefits you know it always seems to sort of be pipped to the post a little bit when it comes to you know what it's aiming to do why choose hydrogen and what how can it benefit us let's let's start with you tim yeah well i think i mean hydrogen is is already key today in uh, in today's energy and industrial sectors uh, it underpins some of our historical and, and future sort of thermal energy needs it's a feedstock for uh, global commodities for example ammonia uh, the majority of hydrogen production today is, is used to make ammonia which is then used to make fertilizer which grows our food so and and it's projected that hydrogen will deliver somewhere between 10 and 15 percent of global sort of net zero energy needs uh, and its role will mainly be for the right use cases. So, for example, the fertilizer sort of feedstock, uh, also for making methanol, and for those sort of hard to uh, electrify, heavy heat, heavy transport applications, particularly sort of maritime uh, transport. And James, uh, let, let's just punt that exact same question towards you. Why hydrogen? I think hydrogen, when it's, when it's combusted, it produces only water and heat, so there's no production of CO2. So as an energy vector, it can help decarbonize the energy system. As, as Tim mentioned, hydrogen is versatile. It can be produced from coal, natural gas, grid electricity, or dedicated renewables. And it can be stored, transported, and used in its pure form. It can be blended with natural gas, or it can be converted to derivatives such as ammonia and methanol. As, as Tim mentioned, we mustn't forget that you know electrification really is the main engine of the energy transition. Um, but we will need all technologies to support our journey to net zero and beyond to net negative. So hydrogen's use really in the energy transition is to decarbonize those sectors that are hard to electrify and also provide an option for long-term energy storage. Yeah, a couple of other excellent points from James there and a couple of other builds in terms of you know, hydrogen. It's, it's an energy vector that can be transported over long distances. Um, so energy can be transferred globally from, from regions with, with high renewable power generation capacity to areas of very high energy demand that can't be met through local renewable power generation uh, within that market. So, for example, the, the German government have set out 
a very clear strategy to 2050 that says by 2050, somewhere between 50 and 70% of their hydrogen will be imported. And they're looking to stable regimes with a security of supply, uh, which feeds very well into uh, part of the, the, the UK narrative and, and the, sort of, the sort of joint declaration of intent that was signed between the UK and German governments in uh, in September. And, and another key role that hydrogen will play is helping to stabilise and support national power grids by being able to convert the sort of variable renewable power generation into end products and by enabling short duration dispatchable power generation. You know, as well as the sort of additionality where transmission networks can't be expanded sufficiently uh, to transfer electrons, uh, and instead they can, those electrons can be converted into molecules to support the, the total primary energy demand need that that country has. Some really interesting points to kick us off there. And I think just in the midst of both of, both of your answers, um, we spoke about producing hydrogen with uh, with traditional energies like you know oil and gas but also using uh, renewables such as offshore wind and that that comes into you know the the rainbow of colors we hear about when it comes to hydrogen right you know i've even heard talk of gold hydrogen but the the main the the main two that always seem to crop up are is blue and green so looking forward looking at cutting carbon emissions. Is it a question of blue or green, or is it both? I mean, from from um, our perspective, both are really needed to develop the market. You know, um, from our hydrogen perspective, it's good to think of production of low-carbon hydrogen as being, you know, little green, then moving into big blue and then big green. You know, presently, um, to mention, you know, we, we are producing a gigawatt scale at the moment of grey hydrogen, but that is not low carbon. Um, we are producing megawatt scale of green hydrogen, uh, but that's not enough. So, you know, once we get the capture plants added to the grey production units, uh, thereby converting them to blue production, uh, new blue hydrogen plants come online and developed. Uh, these will provide the the scale really to drive the market confidence, uh, drive investment, and then hopefully demand as well. Um, I mean, um, you, you talked about the energy, our DMV's energy transition outlook. Um, we predict by 2045 that green hydrogen will be the most cost-efficient uh, hydrogen production method, and hopefully that will provide further growth and flexibility of low-carbon hydrogen production. Totally agree. Uh, both forms of, of low-carbon hydrogen are important. In fact, you know, it's, it's almost three years ago I was um, invited to... Uh, uh, to present at a parliamentary select committee, uh, which had been put up as a blue versus green, and uh, and I quite strongly spoke at, at that uh, at that time um, around uh, the need to move away from colours uh, and to instead focus on the narrative of low carbon hydrogen. And you know, back in 2020, uh, to put a few numbers onto to some of James's points, there there was about 230 gigawatts of global unabated fossil fuel hydrogen production versus about 200 megawatts of electrolytic hydrogen. So, you know, that conversion of the unabated sort of grey and, and black hydrogen um, into uh, into low carbon hydrogen should be the short term focus uh, in parallel with expedited efficiency, process innovation and electrification. And yeah, totally agree with James's point that uh, re reforming of natural gas in, into, into low carbon hydrogen is is key for producing large-scale volumes of, of, of hydrogen in a short-term frame. It, it helps to sort of catalyze and, and move uh, a hydrogen market from being very sort of point-focused within industrial clusters into a more fluid market that's analogous with natural gas today. And it helps to then set that foundation for, for the build-out and deployment of electrolytic hydrogen and the eventual transition from any form of fossil fuel in, in, into uh, into electron-based hydrogen in the, in, in the long term. Yeah, I think I think as as Tim Tim highlighted there, you know the political parties and the 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 view that we're seeing at the moment really is that there is now a, really a broad consensus that um, all 
methods of producing hydrogen and also CCS is going to be needed on certainly the UK's journey to net zero and beyond to net negative. You know, we're hearing from various groups of stakeholders, including, you know, all the political parties that these technologies are part of their vision for the for the energy transition. Um, I think we can disagree really on the on the mix, timing or penetration into certain sectors. But I think there is a broad common vision that we're seeing with hydrogen and CCS as technologies that are needed on on our journey. No, absolutely. And, you know, that sort of CCS-enabled hydrogen is going to be really important for that decarbonisation of that sort of ammonia fertiliser production uh, ahead of electrolytic hydrogen because it can be produced at a a notably lower cost in in regions with low-cost natural gas supplies. So, for example, the, the, the Gulf Coast, USA, Middle East. But counter to that, Electrolytic hydrogen enables these smaller regional hubs like Cromarty Hydrogen, and, and you'll soon hear about uh, Spaceside Hydrogen. And, and, and they're key. it's key to start those smaller electrolytic-based uh, regional hub uh, hydrogen hub solutions to, to progress uh, the sector towards that longer-term full transition away from fossil fuel. James, you just touched on there a little bit about the sort of political landscape and how that obviously constantly plays into to energy and energy is becoming more and more of a hot topic within that political sphere but we've got a general election coming up this year or at least a planned general election coming up uh, later in the year tim this might be putting you in the hot seat a little bit but uh, just as as a developer as as a company that looks to Produce hydrogen and uh, and is in the CCS market. What is the what's the the goal? What would you like to see post general election if a new government comes in or you know current government stays in whatever the outcome? What would be the the ultimate agenda for this space? I think there's probably two points. One, I think we're encouraged that from the uh, yeah from the interactions that we've been doing with with each of the political parties, there does seem to be common consensus in terms of the energy uh, or or certain aspects of the energy agenda and particularly towards meeting that sort of legislated uh, net zero. So I think the key ask uh, that we would have is is more around certainty. It's the ability to be able to have clear positions on policy and regulation that then enable the investment into the scale of projects that we're talking about, because the large-scale hydrogen projects we're, we're in, you know, looking at investments in, in the sort of billions of, of pounds level, uh, and and so that's just really that policy and, and regulatory sort of uh, security and getting that sooner rather than later is really important. Just to echo what Tim's Tim said there, really is you know, uh, policy uh, certainty and those commitments are going to be really critical as we as we sort of probably transition uh away from uh, the 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 uh, or transition in the government space uh i think we we need to recognize as well you know as tim highlighted the time and capital that has been expended by the developers and other stakeholders really to get to this point and you know the successes that we've had um but we do need to retain that policy clarity and certainty uh to keep that confidence going and to de- deliver and drive the market forward yeah one key thing that i'd like to see is is i do think there's a need to expedite a uk-wide sort of whole system energy review to establish what a best fit net zero blueprint for a nationwide energy production and distribution is going to be we need to have a clear understanding of what our societal and associated energy needs will be beyond 2050 and how the production of that energy will be net zero compliant and how that energy can be most cost effectively made, moved and then used. And and that needs a joined up national strategy, cross party joined up national strategy with all regional public and private sectors then pulling in the same direction. Hopefully the future system operator will be able to, to, to navigate that path. You know, I should probably apologize uh, for springing uh, a political question on you. Uh, Just, right out the gate, uh, unprompted, uh, but I felt like it probably was worth uh, worth t- uh, touching on. You know, the, like so far we've discussed the the opportunities that hydrogen can bring and uh, the, the the growth potential there. But let's maybe touch on some of the, the stumbling points, or at least the to stay on brand bottlenecks that hydrogen might be facing. Infrastructure is one uh, one topic that gets brought up time and time again. 
And I think we should probably dive into that. James, before uh, before we started this call, I, I know that you had some some thoughts on that. Do you want to maybe jump in first? Yeah, sure. I mean, infrastructure really is um, is critical for the for the hydrogen market to grow and really support the the hard to electrify sectors. Look, the hydrogen infrastructure is being developed around the industrial clusters located initially in you know the northwest or the east coast of uh, England, and with build out in Scotland and the other industrial regions of England and Wales. You know, it's fair to say that UK policy support for hydrogen pipeline infrastructure is probably a couple of years behind those um, of um, CCS pipeline infrastructure. But, you know, as, as we've mentioned, you know, there is some policy and support coming. There, there needs to be that certainty and clarity. And hopefully with that, we'll get that confidence to invest in the, the hydrogen market. Um, I, should, I should say, you know, we... We see within our energy transition outlook that it's not going to come quick enough uh, to match the UK's government ambition of uh, 10 gigawatts of low carbon hydrogen production capacity by 2030. So we, you know, we need to accelerate. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. Um, I think the key to this is is that the the development of hydrogen infrastructure needs to be demand led, and therein lies a chicken and egg problem. Um, <laughs> Because you know who's going to go first, and uh, so it's this you know in terms of for fuel switching, and particularly because the right use cases of hydrogen, you know, it's for feedstock for big industrial commodities, it's for heavy heat, it's for heavy transport, and these typically tend to be twenty-four hour, five or seven day a week operations, and so security of supply is uh, is, is key uh, to these, and therefore infrastructure that enables a, a continuous supply of low carbon hydrogen into these large energy users is going to be fundamental to a, to a successful hydrogen sector within the within the UK and and uh, across other nations uh, and therefore the interconnectivity and that's what we've seen with the gas network historically you know it's uh, it is we've got that, uh, that that full network across the across the UK interconnecting uh, the industrial clusters and, and wider and energy users across the wider regions, and then the interconnectivity between countries as well. So, I think in terms of you know the struggles of building that hydrogen infrastructure, and it goes back to that policy and regulatory sort of uncertainty. It's it's being able to get clear direction on uh, hydrogen blending, not just within the low pressure gas distribution networks, but within the national transmission system, and also some clarity about this sort of step change from blending to 100% hydrogen. And when we've got things like Project Union looking to create a 100% hydrogen high-pressure network down the east coast of the UK, how do we then move and do that step change from a, a blend of somewhere between 5 and 10, uh, 20% hydrogen through to to 100% uh, hydrogen transferring through our uh, pipeline network. I mean, um, fully fully um, echo what Tim's saying there, but I think also as well, the hydrogen demand aspect is is going to be, as as Tim said, you know, critical to making sure that we develop this 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 market. I think one area where it's really interesting is you know uh, as an, an energy storage technology. You know, in podcast number two of the Bridges and Bottle, Bottleneck series, you know. Um, you know, shameless plug there. Um, we, there was that focus on long-term energy storage, and you know, Julian Leslie, head of the networks for National Grid ESO, he highlighted in the podcast, you know, longer-term storage solutions, and the lack of a clear pathway for them is something that keeps him awake at night. You know, the focus previously has been on short duration, you know, up to half a day storage, but in the future. Uh, energy system long term such as intramonth or seasonal energy storage will be needed you know due to this build out of variable variable renewables you know we we see by 2050 the electrical system is going to double in its variability up to 25% you know causing and caused by that this increasing share of variable variable renewables in the supply mix you know we we do need this significant increase in flexible response within the overall uh, electricity system and this can be provided by uh, hydrogen uh, fired units and uh, all operating almost as as peaking plants a couple of decades now i've been working on and, and looking at industrial energy efficiency and industrial energy uh, transition and it's, it's normally uh, spoken about in the, in as a, an energy trilemma uh, the sort of triangle and, and the, the the opposing aspects of of 
being able to address carbon emissions versus the cost of energy uh, versus the sort of security of supply. And so when, I'm, when I've been speaking to off-takers uh, across our, our range of hydrogen uh, projects that we've been developing, you know, they talk about this sort of license to operate need of addressing carbon emissions versus the need to, to minimize the commercial impact of energy cost increase versus overriding their overriding operational need of security of supply. And it is, it's that security of supply is key. Uh, as I said earlier, you know, the majority of best, best use cases for hydrogen are, are, are continuous, they're 24-7 operations. And so this is why our ability to be able to best leverage our existing energy networks is key. And, you know, we've, we've a nationalised sector spent decades building our energy supply and distribution networks. And, uh, and it's important to try and find a way to be able to repurpose and reuse as much of that as we can, whilst at the same time building the new infrastructure uh, as and where it's appropriate. And it goes back to my earlier point around uh, the sort of national blueprint footprint for uh, for a full joined up uh, energy plan for the UK. Do you know what, uh, guys? You've made my job exceptionally easy today. I asked one question, and then I was able to just sort of sit back and join join the listeners and just sort of taking it all in. So uh, thank you. You know that made, that's made my life very easy. And uh, James, uh, I very much appreciate that you've been listening to the episodes of Bridges and Bottlenecks that you haven't been part of. It's all right, Ryan. I I always listen to your work. Oh, I'm I'm. So glad to hear we've got a regular listener on the show. That's fantastic. Um, but before I do give you those uh, softball questions, let's maybe go on to that transmission piece because there's there's some sort of issues, right, in sort of transition transitioning between that hydrogen blend to full hydrogen across the across the board. There's a lot of talk on how we do that. There's a lot of research into that. What still needs to be done, James? I think this might be a question for you. Yeah, so I mean, the, late last year, the UK government set its strategic policy decision to support blending of up to 20% hydrogen by volume into the gas distribution network, obviously subject to future safety assessments, uh, impacts on the feasibility and economic cases, you know. There does remain this uncertainty on the outcome of the overall decision on both blending and 100% hydrogen in the gas networks. Um, so, for example, we haven't included this policy decision within our energy transition outlook. But I think, as as Tim highlighted, you know, this if there is this policy decision on blending, and we're all hopeful that there, there, there will be that positive decision, the UK government, you know, do predict a, a hydrogen demand of up to 60 terawatt hours by 2035 for just full heating of buildings. You know, there are some challenges along the way. You know, we've had the cancellation of the village, village trails in Whitby and in Redcar, but there should be some optimism for, you know, greater knowledge on uh, understanding of hydrogen um, in the overall gas network with, you know, the SGN H100 project due to begin trialling of hydrogen within around 300 homes by the end of this year. And, you know, the ongoing National Gas Project Union and also Future Good project taking place at DMV's facility at Spade Adam. And these are hopefully to, you know, gain an understanding of how the gas network will need to be developed and operated you know, to deliver hydrogen and provide that security of supply that Tim was talking about. Yeah, no, I agree with all of I think metering is, is going to be, is probably the biggest issue. I think it's probably the biggest barrier uh, to the change at the moment because all, all gas meters across the EU, or majority of them are, are volumetric and, uh, and, and bills are then uh, charged by multiplying against a, a set fixed calorific value. Uh, so one of, one of the issues with moving to a, a blend, and particularly if there's any variability within that blend, is you know what's the calorific value that will then appear on a on, on a customer's bill, whether they be domestic, uh, commercial, or industrial. So it, it, for quite a long time now, uh, there's been a working group uh, led by the Institute of Gas Engineers and Managers that have been looking at the transition of the natural gas network and, and how that will progress. And, and, and this key aspect of metering is one that they're focused on and, and driving forward. Uh, you know, and, and from an end user perspective, the, 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 the technologies for, to enable fuel switching from natural gas to hydrogen, they're pretty much there. You know, uh, particularly when we've been looking with with the off-takers that we have for sort of chromity hydrogen, and we've been talking, they're mainly uh, steam boilers, uh, big, large industrial steam boilers with a burner, and that burner can can convert 
um, either with modifications or by putting a new burner into the uh, into the boiler. So, and that's you know five years ago, several of the boiler and burner original equipment manufacturers weren't really focused on and looking at hydrogen. They all are now, and and they've got a suite of, of solutions ready to go. And, and the same again through the high for heat program uh, created and set up by the UK government. Um, I don't know, it must be seven, eight years ago now. That was a five-year program that's been completed and coming out of the back of, of that, there's now a whole range of, 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 of uh, domestic uh, hydrogen boilers ready to go as well. I think also this this highlights potentially some of the constraints that we might see in the in the supply chain. And this is always mentioned as a key risk. It's one of my, uh, one of my conference bi- uh, bingo buzzwords. And I think from, from my perspective, you know, the some of the materials and components that we we need for delivery of hydrogen and CCS uh, still need to be developed. They're not there yet. And we need that certainty and that confidence in the direction and the vision that we're going to allow the supply chain to to invest in developing these types of uh, materials and components uh, in order to actually deliver on on the transition. It could be something relatively minor as a seal or, you know, a a detector or something like that. And we need to um, have that that certainty and the confidence for that investment of this uh, of by the supply chain over the longer term and that sort of goes back to what we were talking about um right at the start of the program probably just worth pointing out as well that in, in, in you know in terms of building hydrogen infrastructure it isn't just the uh, distribution pipeline uh, there's much wider infrastructure implications um, and particularly because the way that the UK government have set up both the industrial cluster and the electrolytic funding support programs, uh, the developer is required to oversee, develop and oversee a full chain solution from the point of primary energy through to the point of use. There can be no risk-taking intermediary within that. So as a hydrogen developer, when we're looking and thinking of building hydrogen infrastructure, uh, if it's CCS enabled, we, we need natural gas, a source of natural gas. We need a, a CO2 transport and, and sequestration uh, solution. Um, if it's electrolytic, we need the water plus large-scale power uh, uh, connection and, and a portfolio of, of clean power purchase agreements. And in either case, you, you really want to be in close proximity to large-scale hydrogen demand and the ability to access approved, repurposed or new gas distribution network that we've spoken about there. One of the reasons why we we, we d- developed Cromarty uh, first is because it's at the very end of the gas network. And beyond the end of the gas network, you have uh, large industrial users who have been dependent for decades on road-hauled fossil fuel. And so instead, we've we looked to produce a, uh, a hydrogen production facility that can enable road hauled hydrogen uh, uh, whilst we're waiting for the, the clarity on the policy and direction around uh, pipeline infrastructure. I think what, what Tim's saying is um, fully accurate. You know, the, the, these, these projects and clusters, these are first of a kind complex projects with multiple stakeholders and all needing to commence or be available at the, at the same time. And this is no easy, easy feat, uh, and it is incredibly challenging. You know, Tim, you just touched on there, um, sort of cherry pick points in your answer. Uh, you spoke on how hydrogen is reliant on either uh, traditional energy sources such as oil and gas or sort of more green energy sources, and that is something that uh, that's worth touching on. That sort of intersectionality of hydrogen across the various renewable sources, predominantly predominantly offshore wind. How do you see the two sectors connecting going forward? So I think it's really important to first acknowledge that hydrogen is hydrogen. And it comes back to our earlier point, uh, as long as you know we're moving to a low carbon specified, uh, as per the low carbon hydrogen standard, hydrogen that meets the low carbon hydrogen standard, then, then that's the key here. What uh, I think is, is really great is, is in terms of where you can recognise the strengths of, of both CCS-enabled hydrogen and electrolytic hydrogen, as we discussed earlier on. The fact that you can get the scale uh, within the industrial clusters and then wider within the wider regions, you can then look to deploy electrolytic hydrogen at the right uh, scale and 
demand-led sort of timeline uh, to, to meet those uh, uh, off-taker needs. And what I think is quite smart when I look at, for example, the Scottish Government's Hydrogen Action Plan, it outlines a, a, a total of 14 regional hydrogen hubs, three of them uh, in, in terms of Aberdeen, uh, Fife and, and Grangemouth are CCS-enabled hydrogen hubs. All 14, including those previous three, uh, have the ability and will deploy electrolytic hydrogen. Uh, and it's just about the scale in the short to medium term ahead of effectively it all becoming uh, electrolytic hydrogen in the long term. I think, um, Ryan, to go back to your point on um, you know the scale, uh, sorry, not the scale, but uh, the intersectionality between offshore, uh, between wind and uh, hydrogen. If we just look at variable renewables, not just um, wind, there is going to be this huge build out um, in in the coming years. You know, within our ETO, we predict a fivefold increase in UK variable renewable capacity over the next thirty years, and that will provide an opportunity for hydrogen as an energy storage option in in two ways. You know, we we talked about you know managing the electrical demand. You know, when there is no wind or sun, and it will will be critical. Um, you know, we we have had periods in the past years where there was very little wind for consecutive months. And at the moment, you know, we can power up the, the natural gas power plants. But as we increasingly decarbonize, we need to be able to store that excess wind and solar for, for, for use later. And secondly, you know, the electrical grid will see an increase, uh, sorry, will need to be increased and, and strengthened to meet this increased supply of uh, distributed variable renewables. You know, if not, we are going to see greater constraints where electricity generated will need to be switched off or curtailed. And, you know, we're, we're already seeing that at the moment with constraint payments where generators are compensated for reducing their output. You know, for wind generators, these payments have, uh, have steadily been increasing over the past decade. And, you know, I'll only increase if the grid in key areas isn't isn't strengthened. So when we see these this excess electricity through the variable renewables, we can look to store that additional electricity as hydrogen and then use later when supply might be lower or we and we need some extra uh, electricity to meet to meet that demand and this is really where hydrogen production, storage and power generation plants could support the grid in providing that additional flexibility. I totally agree. And just some, some you know, sort of further context and around that, UK territorial waters can host tens of gigawatts of offshore wind, more than enough to supply all of the UK's primary energy needs and to enable the UK to be an ongoing net exporter of energy and commodities from energy intensive uh, industries. Um, you know, the, the offshore wind capacity factors are high. The UK has some of the best wind reserves in, in Western Europe uh, and has the, the capability to manage the intermittency of renewable power generation. You know, it's within our ability and our current experience and knowledge to be able to do that. And let's, you know, take specifically Scotwind Round 1. You know, that's seeking to deploy uh, just under 30 gigawatts of new renewable power generation by 2035. And there's plenty of, of seabed lease area remaining for, for subsequent rounds. However, you know, the north of Scotland transmission network is already heavily curtailed, to, to James's point. And the current investment programme for uh, power grid reinforcement is, is insufficient to enable Scotwind Round 1 to, to fully deploy. And, and, and therefore, hydrogen can and should play a very important role in providing a, a, almost a release valve for, uh, for curtailed power. Now, the, the UK's current primary energy needs are roughly about 20% for power, of which half is, is still generated by fossil fuels, about 25% for transport fuels, and, and about 55% for, for heating stroke industrial fuels. So large-scale electrolytic hydrogen production will develop in areas of existing and potential wind power curtailment to be able to convert these electrons into materials and molecules that the society needs. So go back to the ammonia for fertilizer for food that we spoke about earlier, methanol for marine fuel, sustainable aviation fuels, et cetera. There are challenges really to this to this operating model though. And you know, we shouldn't we shouldn't kid ourselves. You know, if it was easy, uh, we'd already be there uh, doing it, you know. 
we do need to manage the operational cycling of the the electrolyzer which produces the hydrogen turning down the electrolyzer too much can cause you know safety issues where the hydrogen and oxygen produced can mix in the system to cause a flammable atmosphere there are also integrity issues where turning off the electrolyzer will reduce its its lifespan and so have a have an impact on its uh, financial viability you've got storage of hydrogen Hydrogen has a much lower volumetric energy density than natural gas, and that's you know three to four times less dense, and that's going to increase the complexity of uh, storage solution. Storage solutions are predicted to be a mix of surface tanks, you know, for small quantities of hydrogen, and then underground storage in salt caverns for larger quantities of hydrogen. And we will need those underground hydrogen storage. Uh, solutions to provide that intramonth and seasonal backup ca- uh, capacity for dispatchable hydrogen-fired power generation. And then, you know, finally, there is going to be this water demand requirement for hydrogen production that will need to be managed, whether it's blue or green. And with water scarcity a concern in some regions of the globe, I mean, it's, you know, it's hard to imagine in in uh, such an issue in the UK, given you know the frequent storms and floods that we've been we've been having, but you know there are summers where we do have a constrained water supply, which will only increase as our climate changes. You know the location uh, of available water supply and security will be critical, and this is particularly relevant if hydrogen is going to be used for building heating when stores of hydrogen ne- are needed to be generated in the summer months in preparation for greater demand in the colder winter months you know just just before i I do want to i promise we will get to carbon storage as well and dive into that but i feel like just one more one more question and uh, if you have anything else to add on hydrogen before we kind of shift over i'll give you time to do that too but just on storage where are we at with hydrogen storage what what can the uk do say now or in the near future, it's it's a quite a nascent stage. Uh, you know, we do have uh, some existing salt cavern storage capacity in the, in the north of England, and uh, but it is very much at that sort of nascent stage. Uh, uh, but as James sort of said, it, it's uh, it's going to be a key requirement of of this sort of full nationwide joined up energy system that uh, we're going to need to to, to put in place. Uh, so uh, the Department of Energy Security and Net Zero, they're cognizant of that. There is a program that's being developed around uh, hydrogen storage um, and, uh, and we, we look forward and await that uh, that coming out. And and you know, just to again build on one of the points that James made earlier on, you know, a key part of, of uh, sort of the policy around uh, domestic heating is is for the uptake of heat pumps. But you know, if, you, if we project ourselves say to 2050 and, and we might have 20 million houses across the UK all on heat pumps and then we get one of these extended becalmed winter periods of little sun and, and, and no wind, the sort of dunkel flouter uh, as it's known. That can be managed, uh, again well thought through uh, and it can be managed and supported through uh, the sort of you know two to four weeks of dispatchable of, of hydrogen storage to be able to enable dispatchable power uh, generation to be able to underpin those uh, 20 million plus sort of heat pumps. So it, it's this ability for, for electrification and, and, and hydrogen, the right use case uh, applications for hydrogen to be able to work in tandem with each other. Yeah, I, th- I think um, at, at the moment, if we look at the electricity grid, the gas grid and the water networks, they are quite disparate. I think as, as we move forward, the future vision is going to be of this increasingly holistic but complex distributed energy system which includes gas and water networks why am i mentioning this well at the moment the gas network provides quite a lot of energy storage really the the the, uh, transmission system and distribution system provides a lot of gas packing that provides this uh this store of energy that is needed certainly from a from a daily perspective and then you've got the the lng uh, tanks and um, interconnectors and our own uh, domestic production that provides sort of inter um, month or seasonal support for energy really as we move through the energy transition there's going to be a reduction in in uh you know uh, gas use build out of electricity and the the electrical grid is uh, a lot more um sensitive than uh, than the gas network and so we are going to have to have mechanisms as we've sort of highlighted before of storing energy 
over a sort of a longer term uh, to be able to provide uh, capacity when the sun doesn't shine and the the, the wind doesn't uh, blow. Yeah, so I think in terms of we've we, we touched on a little bit about I agree with James's point. So because we, 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 we've we've spoken, one of the questions earlier on was around the sort of challenges the infrastructure needs around hydrogen, the development of, of, of the water infrastructure for these very large-scale hydrogen production hubs is uh, is a key piece of strategic planning uh, in, in terms of national planning framework uh, sort of thinking. And this, there's, a, there's other key pieces is this these network, uh, electrical network connections. You know, when, when you're looking at seven to 10 years to get a, uh, a, a power connection upwards of sort of 60 megawatts, it's a, it's a big barrier uh, and one that we need to, and I know there are ongoing activity now around trying to reduce some of the backlog around uh, uh, electrical grid um, uh, connections uh, today. That, that was... Uh discussed in podcast number two there we go now you've got your homework <laughs> right if, if if i were a better podcast host we've touched on ccs earlier and I, I probably could have came up with a nice segue to bring us straight into this but i was too i was too caught up in that in-depth hydrogen chat to, i think it would have been spoiled we would have missed out on so much but now i do need to touch on it we promised ccs at the top of the episode and now it's time so i think Let's let's start very broad stroke again. I promise, listener, this won't be as long of a, a section as hydrogen. The UK government has ambitious plans for CCUS. And to be clear, it will be needed to get us to net zero. But are we doing enough? We've had a CCS licensing round and we've obviously, as, um, as Tim could tell us all about, we've had the track process as well. But is is have we got the ball rolling quick enough and is there enough happening in that space to hit those targets the overall vision for the for the uk government is that ccus will go through sort of three phases we're going to see an initial phase of achieving the of looking to achieve the ambition of capturing 20 to 30 megatons per annum by 2030. A second phase being a transition of the market with the emergence of a competitive commercial market. And finally, a third phase of a self-sustaining CCUS market being being realised. Um, I mean, that that first that first phase, uh, looking at the uh, 20 to 30 megatons of uh, CO2 by 2030, we forecast that we won't meet that ambition. You know, we predict that only around 11 um, million tonnes of CO2 will be captured, but this will rise to 25 in uh, in in 2035. And I mean, what we what we do predict though is the carbon prices will start to rise. Uh, there will be falling costs of CO2 avoided by the application of CCS, and hopefully we'll see a stable competitive market. And this will start to influence uh, carbon removal project uh, development decisions uh, to either seek uh, that government support that is there in the initial phase through business models, or to sell their CO2 removals onto onto an open market. A combination of this government-led and then market-led development could really de-risk projects by providing security needed through government support and then attracting further investment through sort of a stable market uh, with the actual potential for for, for higher margins. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Uh, I think in terms of, uh, you know, specifically when we look for for Storega and and for the uh, ACORN project, um, that, that ACORN project has been... In, in one shape or form has been in development for uh, over 15 years. Um, so, you know, we, what we do genuinely welcome in terms of uh, some of the, the, the recent clarity that we, we've had, uh, particularly in terms of, you know, coming out of the original sort of track uh, application process and now getting uh, awarded uh, the, the sort of track two status for uh, for, for, for the Acorn uh, carbon capture and storage uh, project. So there's still a lot of work to be done uh, on that, and, and we will, along with our partners in the Acorn project, continue to work together as we enter into those discussions with the UK government. Um, it, it is very complex. Uh, there's a there's a whole emitter uh, program that then interfaces into that where. We need to develop uh, the capture solutions uh, at large single point emitters 
uh, and then again the, uh, the 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 infrastructure to then to be able to move uh, the CO2 from these these points of capture through to the points of uh, of sequestration. So you know our focus is on on fulfilling the requirements of the track two process as quickly as possible, and we'll continue to work with the government throughout that process. And, and to one of James's points earlier on there around that you know that carbon pricing, you know carbon pricing. It's a, it's a key enabler, uh, not just for carbon capture and storage, but for, for hydrogen uh, as well, um, you know, both within the UK and, and internationally. You know, large fossil fuel users are facing increasing energy trading scheme, uh, carbon cost impact, uh, and we're seeing this drive interest in, in low-carbon hydrogen. And uh, just before Christmas, we had the UK government announcement on the carbon border adjustment mechanism. Uh, and again, that's going to influence... Uh, CCS and hydrogen uh, deployment within the UK. Just picking up on Tim's final point there, the CBAM or carbon buster adjustment mechanism, that's going to be really critical. And hopefully when that comes in in 2027, uh, that will stop the the, the carbon leakage that we might um, expect to see with manufacturing or emissions being uh, sent uh, outside of the UK. Um, I think what's really, really important, and Tim highlighted it, you know, these, and we talked about it previously, you know, there's these clusters and the the carbon market. It, these are complex projects. You know, you've got multiple stakeholders. They they all need to be uh, delivered at the same at same time. And where we are at the moment is none of these have actually reached final investment decision. You know, this is this is expected. The first phase of these are expected to come, you know, this year. But hopefully once these um, clusters have got, uh, the first round of clusters have got um, FID approved and they're moving into uh, operations, they'll attract investment from other industrial emitters, either local to the pipelines or local to the clusters, or from those seeking to move into the, 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 the region to decarbonize their operations. And then so that will attract growth into those into those regions as well. No, absolutely. Um, you know, the committee of, uh, for climate change has stated that uh, carbon capture and storage uh, CCS is critical to a, a, achieving an affordable transition to net zero. Uh, the UK industrial cluster program uh, sees uh, each industrial cluster underpinned by one or more full chain uh, CO two storage solutions, and, and so lower cost, large scale, low carbon hydrogen through the reforming of, of, of natural gas can't be enabled without CCS. So the two have to go hand in hand. And, and the industrial clusters are ideal starting points for, for scaling up hydrogen production, given that you can produce hydrogen in close proximity to large industrial clusters, for example, the chemical refineries. This, this uh, transitioning of, of grey hydrogen, unabated uh, gas, uh, natural gas-produced hydrogen into, into, into blue hydrogen is, is, a, is a very logical first step. And I think we, we talked about the, the, um, the flexibility of hydrogen uh, right at the start, but what's really interesting about uh, carbon capture and storage is that actually uh, they uh, the CO2 can be taken from a number of different sources, uh, such as cement production, steel mills, energy production, uh, either from natural gas or waste, and then industrial processes as well as hydro production. So you, you, you are um, looking at these clusters to decarbonize huge swathes of industry that effectively are very difficult to uh, electrify. And so, you know, you can start to look to reduce the industrial emissions in these areas, drive uh, jobs, but then also drive investment and drive um, uh, a, a carbon market where we could look to um, import CO2 as a, you know, what turns CO2 from waste into actually um, something of intrinsic value and uh, look to uh import co2 from you know uh, near near to near to us uh europe yeah and no, clusters will help us kickstart the hydrogen economy we can we can move uh, hydrogen from being you know produced at single key points within say a chemical plant or a refinery into uh, network enabled distribution and and so we can move to what's known as that sort of fluid uh, hydrogen market analogous to the natural gas market so yeah the industrial clusters can kickstart that hydrogen economy and, uh, and allow hydrogen to provide that uh, that uh, pathway for decarbonisation of these uh, of heavy industry and, and and other hard to electrify 
areas, as, as James has said. I think it's also important to note as well is the um, the storage aspect. So from uh, a C- CCS or the carbon capture and storage perspective, the UK is actually in a, um, a very good uh, position in that we have quite a high proportion of storage capacity within within the Europe and Norway and ourselves. And so um, in order to decarbonize a lot of uh, industry in, in Europe, um, they are going to need to uh, d- uh, develop capture sites and develop the infrastructure in order to transport that CO2 from the industrial emitters to uh, geological stores either um, it, within their region or Norway or, or to ourselves. So actually, um, you know, uh, we, we can be seen as uh, importing a, a valuable product in, in, you know, in, in the decades to come. I've already said this, but I'm going to say it again. You've made my job incredibly easy today. But I do, I do have just one more question. And as a regular listener, James, you'll know exactly what it is. We've had a quite a comprehensive conversation uh, today covering near enough any aspect I could think of of the hydrogen market and CCS. But if you had a key takeaway from today's conversation, what would it be? Let's start with you, Tim. I, I think it's around, uh, it's around 2050 and being able to place ourselves into 2050. Um, you know, it's fantastic. We've got a five gigawatt uh, target by 2025, 10 gigawatts by 2030. Scotland has a 25 gigawatts of, of hydrogen uh, production capacity by 2045. It'd be great to see an equivalent UK-wide uh, uh, target um, uh, developed, and 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 into and and this sort of UK-wide full energy system review that can be expedited to provide this sort of blueprint for a nationwide infrastructure. Uh, that's needed to be able to deliver net zero by 2050. I think. I think from from my perspective, you know, we we talked about this uh, policy clarity and certainty from government. We need we need that to maintain the confidence and 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 drive drive investment. I think from from my perspective, looking at you know the energy transition and where we need to get to at 2050 and and beyond. You know, it's a huge challenge. It's there's there's going to be huge changes ahead. Uh, it's exciting times, and you know, I do feel a great privilege to be working in the energy sector at this at this current time. I think we are we are heading in the right direction, but there needs to be greater pace to ensure we meet net zero by 2050. And with that, the fourth episode of Bridges and Bottlenecks comes to an end. Thank you, James and Tim, for joining us. And. Every every episode I wrap up by saying we've tackled some big topics within the energy transition today, but we, we truly have today. There's been a plethora of topics covered and it's uh, we are well and truly keeping the ball rolling on this series. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, you can do what James has done and listen to the rest of the episodes of Bridges and Bottlenecks. Uh, we've covered a range of topics already and we only have two episodes left to go. So if you've enjoyed this episode... Keep an eye on your podcast platform of choice. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you again, James and Tim, for joining me. And I'll see you next time. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter, and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.